This week we're going to talk about Rashi, the great Torah commentary. So Rashi, or which usually is thought to be an acronym of Rabbi Shlomo Yitzchaki, Yitzchaki meaning the son of Yitzchak, or Rabbi Shlomo, son of Yitzchak. He was one of the greatest Jewish scholars and teachers in the past thousand years, um, if not the greatest, um, and definitely one of the greatest Jewish scholars and teachers in all of our 3,000 plus year Jewish history. Um, Rashi's works has become famous because his works are studied by every single Jewish school child who studies Torah, who studies Talmud, is studying Rashi. And really, almost any Jew who studies the basic Jewish texts, together with the basic texts, will always be studying Rashi. And so therefore, Rashi, his impact on Jewish thought, on Jewish scholarship, cannot be understated. Rashi's impact um, on all of us um, cannot be understated in the way that his commentary has impacted the way we study Torah today. So who was Rashi? So Rashi was born in Troyes, France, which is a small town um, just east of Paris. Um, he was born in Troyes, France in the year 1040. So close to a thousand years ago, 980 years ago to be exact. And he died on the 29th of the month of Tammuz um, in the year 1105. So um, this day, just to understand the period that Rashi lived, these were the early days of the Jewish community um, in Christian Europe. There had been for some years a small Jewish community already since the days of the Roman Empire. There had been a small Jewish community in Italy, in southern France, in parts of Spain, already for close to a thousand years by this point, since the days of the Roman Empire, but it had been a relatively small community. In the he days of Rome, Rome itself had a very large Jewish community, but generally speaking, throughout much of the early Christian period, the Jewish community in Europe was mostly small. In the 9th and 10th centuries, that's in the 800s and 900s, Jews began <laughs> moving north from Italy and southern France, particularly as Italy was repeatedly invaded. Um, it, they moved north to, um, southern, uh, to um, Germany, France, um, and the, what, had, what was then, um, the, uh, what was then uh, more of a settled place. And Jews moved into in very, very large numbers in what we know today as France and Germany. Jews also moved west from Byzantine, Byzantine, which is modern-day Turkey, was the remnants of what was left of the Roman Empire. And, um, and at that time, Jews went through a lot of persecution. Um, in the later days of the Byzantine Empire under, um, under Justinian and other emperors, and so Jews gradually began to move to um, Europe. Um, so, and as well as Jews were also suffering a lot in Mesopotamia, where the largest Jewish community Still in, was still in Mesopotamia, but Jews from Mesopotamia were all, also moving to Europe in the 800s, the 900s. And so France and Germany, by the year 1000, France and Germany had very sizable Jewish communities. Around the year of 1000, Rabbeinu Gershon, 
um, who's often referred to as Rabbeinu Gershom or Hagola, the light of the exile, was a um, German Jewish scholar born in Germany who had gone and studied in the great yeshivas of Mesopotamia. There was still at the time great yeshivas there. And Rabbi Gershom came back to um, Mainz, which was the largest Jewish community in Germany at the time. And um, he was appointed as the chief rabbi of Mainz, um, and really a chief rabbi of what they created a federation um, of, um, of Spira, Mainz, and, um, and, uh, and Worms, which became known as um, the Shum Federation, was a federation of Jewish, the largest Jewish communities in Europe at the time. And Rabbeinu Gershon became the chief rabbi, and he built a yeshiva um, in Mainz. And that was the first um, major yeshiva to be built in um, Europe, and, um, or at least in um, Northern Europe. And it soon became a great center for Jewish study. And scholars who until then would travel all the way, young budding students who until then would travel to Mesopotamia, um, to Babylon, to study in yeshivas, would go to Mainz, to the great yeshiva over there to study. And gradually yeshivas began to spring up all over France and Germany. And this, this starting about the year 1000, this ushered in a period where France and Germany became the centers of Jewish learning, producing many of the most important scholars in um, the Jewish world. And most notable, the most notable scholar without question from this period was Rashi. And this period, of course, began, marked the very beginning of Ashkenazic Jewry, as we know it, Jewry that started in Central Europe um, or Western Europe, in France and in Germany um, in these days, mostly built around the main Jewish center, which was in um, Mainz at the time. Now, who was Rashi himself? So despite being one of the most famous Jewish scholars of all times, um, there are dozens of books, biographies written of, about Rashi um, in the thousand years or so since Rashi was born. However, we actually know very little information about Rashi's life. Um, we have a little tiny bit that we glean from Rashi himself. While many scholars in their books, they often write biographical information, their students write biographical information, for whatever reason, Rashi writes almost nothing about himself. In his many, many works that he wrote, um, he writes almost nothing about himself. We find Rashi to be the humblest of men, um, again and again, writing how, um, uh, writing how he doesn't consider himself of great importance or his views of great importance, uh, but rather always deferring to his teachers and deferring to others. Um, so Rashi really doesn't write anything about himself. Um, and his students also, although his students, as we'll soon see, wrote extensively, they wrote very little about themselves or their teacher. So we know little about Rashi. We know that his father, um, Yitzchak, was a scholar in his own right. Um, Rashi quotes his father a handful of times in his commentary. Um, not often, but a handful of times. And um, we know that Rashi had a very famous uncle whose name was Rav Shimon Bar Yitzchak. Um, who was a well-known scholar and poet in his day. So we know that Rashi was born in 1040 in Troyes in France, and he lived there in the early years, um, and he got married there in Troyes. We don't know who he got, who is, what his wife's name was, but we know he got married there while in his teens, 
which was a very common thing um, back then um, and throughout much of our history that um, Jewish men would get married, Jewish Jews would get married in their teens. So as a young man, um, after he got married, as was also common then, he left his wife and went to study in the yeshiva in Worms. Worms was a very large Jewish community at the time. Today it's a small, small town near Frankfurt, but then at the time it was a very large city and it was one of the largest Jewish communities um, of its day. And there he studied in the yeshiva under Rabbi Yaakov Bayakar, who Rashi always considered his primary teacher. In fact, in one place, Rashi writes about defending his views on specific halacha, on specific law. Um, he writes that his views are not his own, but rather everything he writes is that of his teachers, Rabbi Yaakov Bayakar. And although in this particular law that he was writing about, he did not hear this ruling from his teacher, Rabbi Yaakov Bayakar, but all of his knowledge and all of his training was from his teacher, and therefore every conclusion that he comes to, he believed was really just an extension of the, um, of the um, teachings that his teacher had taught him. Later, after Rabbi Yaakov Bar-Yakar died, <laughs> he, started, he studied under Rabbi Yitzchak Halevi, um, who succeeded Rabbi Yaakov, leading the yeshiva in Worms. And then at a certain point, he went to the great yeshiva of its day, the yeshiva in Mainz, which was the largest yeshiva at the time. Um, and Rabbeinu Gershon had died actually the year that Rashi was born in 1040. And at this point, it was led by a great scholar, Rabbi Yitzchak ben Yehuda. We know that Rashi also spent time wandering around Jewish communities of Europe, which was something that was common for young scholars, would take time, and this was common um, throughout much of our history, that young scholars would take time wandering around different Jewish communities, um, visiting communities to get to know the Jewish community, visiting different scholars around. Um, there wasn't communication like we have today. And so to become better rounded in Jewish knowledge, um, in the Jewish experience, know the way Jews were living, uh, it was common for young scholars to travel around. Um, it was also seen as a form of penitence, of a form of teshuva. Um, it was common for them to travel around. And it's thought that Rashi traveled around, went as far as Spain, um, traveled through France and Germany, um, visiting different Jewish communities. And it was during this period as a student that he already began to write what would later become his famous commentaries on the Torah and on the Talmud. Later, after some 10 years of study, um, Rashi went back to Troyes in France, where he lived for the rest of his life. And not long after arriving in Troyes, he was quickly recognized as the greatest scholar of his day. He was appointed by the community as the rabbi of Troyes, or the leader of the Bet Din. Um, we know that he signed on declarations of the Bet Din from Troyes at the time. Um, and over there in Troyes, he opened the yeshiva, and he taught where many students flocked to him, and his students would become the leading scholars of the next generation. Just about all the leading scholars after Rashi are just about all his students. And what's interesting is that Rashi's students all have a revolutionary way of thinking. He teaches his students to question everything they learn, to think independently, not accept anything. Um, and they all have this unique 
um, form of questioning. He teaches them clarity, as we'll soon see. Rashi's, um, one of Rashi's strongest points was the value of clarity. And um, he also, Rashi wrote extensively. And he tells, he teaches his students to write and encourages his students to write. Many of his students write in their books how their teacher, Rashi, encouraged them to write their books and even edited their books and was actively helped them in writing their books. And so what we see is his students write on a range of Jewish topics. And we see this sudden, while there were books written before Rashi, writing one's own book of Jewish scholarship was not all that common. Most, the average scholar didn't just write their own book prior to Rashi. And uh, we see Rashi's students, many, many of them all write books with Rashi encouraging his students to write and to publish. Of course, everything then was handwritten. Nothing was, there was no printing yet. Um, everything is handwritten, but Rashi strongly, strongly encourages his students to write and to, and to publish. We also see that Rashi is being sent letters from across Europe with halachic questions. Um, and we have dozens um, or hundreds of chuvot of responsa from Rashi um, that Rashi answers different scholars all over Europe, um, including many of his own teachers from um, the yeshivas where he had studied in mines and worms. The, in, they also sent him questions and ask his opinion on different things. Um, clearly, Rashi is recognized by this point as the greatest scholar of his day. Now, we know that though Rashi served as the rabbi of Troyes, and he taught many students, and he sent halachic responsa um, across Europe, he never took payment for his work. We find this among many of our scholars. Maimonides is another famous scholar who worked rather than taking a salary. And Rashi, too, worked rather than taking a salary. Um, he supported himself as a merchant, um, although he doesn't write anywhere exactly what he traded in. Many historians believe that Rashi was a wine merchant um, and even owned vineyards and produced his own wine. And that is because in multiple places, Rashi gives very, very detailed descriptions of wine making. Um, and he seemed to be quite an expert wine maker. And we see that just from his descriptions in different places explaining um, winemaking in the Talmud or explaining halachic responsa. And um, it therefore appears at least that Rashi would have been a um, wine, wine producer and wine merchant. France, we know, of course, is a center um, for wine. Um, still today, I think where Rashi lived in Troyes is Champagne region. Um, we don't know what kind of wine he would have produced if he did. There is, though, a wine today that has been named after Rashi called Rashi wine, presuming that he was a wine merchant. So Rashi had no sons. We know that he only had daughters. Um, he had two, something three daughters. We're told that Rashi's daughters themselves were scholars. Now, in Jewish history, um, and perhaps that's a subject of its own, um, Jewish scholarship among women, um, in Jewish history, generally women were literate. In other words, women were taught to read and write. Um, they were usually taught to pray and to study Torah, uh, to study the written Torah, but they weren't really given much greater scholarship. Um, women that did become scholars, and there were a handful throughout history, um, were exceptions, not the rule. But we are told that Rashi's daughters were scholars. Um, he did teach them um, Talmud, 
and taught them scholarship and they were great scholars in their own right. Um, his two daughters that we know of um, for certain, one was, one's name was Miriam. Um, we know Miriam was married to uh, one of Rashi's um, great students, Yehuda Bar Nassan, who is referred to by the acronym as Rivan. Um, Rivan actually in a number of, in one place where Rashi did not get a chance to conclude his commentary on one book of the Talmud, on the book of Makos, um, Rivan concluded Rashi's um, commentary for him. His other daughter's name was Yocheved. We know Yocheved was ma married to Mayor Ben Shmuel, and um, they had, the couple had three sons. Each of their sons, Mayor Ben Shmuel was also one of Rashi's great students. They had three sons. Each of their sons became great scholars in their own right. Um, the oldest son was Rabbi, Rabbi Shmuel, who is known as by the acronym Rashbam. Rashbam completed Rashi's commentary on the book of Bava Batra, and also wrote his own, his own commentary on books of the Talmud and on the entire scripture, on Tanakh. Um, his, their second son was Rivam, Rabbeinu Yitzchak, known as Rivam. And their third son was Rabbi Yaakov, who is known as Rabbeinu Tam. Rabbeinu Tam, after the death of Rashi, became a scholar in his own right and effectively became recognized as the greatest scholar of his day, um, and essentially the father of a whole later system of scholarship known as the Tosafot. So Rabbein Otam became the leader of the Tosafot. So these grandsons of Rashi really became the leader of Ashkenazic Jewry, together with all of Rashi's many students. So we know then in Rashi's later years, Rashi lived through, he was born in 1040, he died, we said, in 1105. Um, he lived through the, the First Crusade. Now the First Crusade is also a subject of its own that we should really do our own class on, a separate class on. Um, the First Crusade um, in, was in 1096, where the Pope called for um, crusaders to recapture the Holy Land. On the way through to the Holy Land, they passed through dozens of Jewish communities, including the largest Jewish communities of its time, Worms and Mainz and Spira and Cologne. And um, in each of these towns, they, the, um, they killed every single Jew that they found. And um, they killed, uh, we believe, tens of thousands of Jews in Germany were killed during the um, pogroms of this first crusade. Um, Rashi himself was not impacted. Rashi at the time lived in Troyes, which was in France, and France was not directly impacted by the first crusade. However, Rashi wrote kinos, Rashi wrote poems, lamenting the destruction of these communities um, because it would have been a very traumatic thing for all of Ashkenazic Jews in those days. So we know Rashi died in 1105, we said on the 29th day of the month of Tammuz. He was buried in Troyes, where he died. Um, the Jews were later expelled from France in the 14th century. First in the early 1300s, then they were let back in, they were, then they were expelled a second time. Given that uh, Jews were only let back into France much, much, much later, um, it wasn't until the 18th century that they were let back in. Given that Jews did not live in France for well over 400 years, um, all the Jewish places, including the synagogues 
and the cemeteries have been lost. We don't know where Rashi's grave would have been or where any other Jewish location in France prior to the expulsion would have been, just as happened in Spain and in England and other places that Jews were expelled from. Um, we have found um, through excavation some um, Jewish cemeteries um, or places where Jews were perhaps murdered um, and, ma and mass graves, but we don't know where, exactly where Rashi is buried. There is a field in Troyes known as the Jews field, um, and it is thought that that field was where um, the Jewish cemetery in Troyes would have been, and Rashi presumably would have been buried. Um, it's still there today in Troyes, France, and there's actually a great monument to Rashi um, built in that field. Um, there is, interestingly, a synagogue in Worms um, in Germany that is known as Rashi's Synagogue that had lasted for hundreds and hundreds of years. And in that synagogue, there had been a chair, a stone chair that was known as Rashi's chair that Rashi had sat on. Um, now, it was destroyed. The synagogue itself was destroyed by the Nazis. It has since been rebuilt. We don't know how Rashi would have been in that synagogue. As far as we know, Rashi was only in Worms as a student, but lived throughout the rest of his life in um, Troyes um, in France. Now, there are a number of tales that are told about Rashi. The accuracy of these tales we don't know, um, but there are a number of um, common Jewish tales um, that have been told about Rashi over the years. One, said, one story goes that about how he was born. It says that his father was a diamond merchant, and his father had a, managed to get hold of a very, very large, beautiful diamond. And so when the Bishop of Troyes, Troyes, like many cities then, um, was, um, a, um, was a, um, a church town, in other words, controlled by a bishop, it was controlled by the, it was built around a, um, it was built around a, um, a, um, a bishop and a, and a church, and so, and the city was controlled by the bishop. And so um, it's told that when Rashi, that um, when Rabbi Yitzchak, Rashi's father, um, had this great diamond, and when the bishop of Troyes heard that he had this beautiful diamond, he decided that this diamond was only fitting to be put in his cross that he wore around his neck. And so he um, called, summoned Rabbi Yitzchak, and he asked, um, he asked Rabbi Yitzchak to sell him this diamond. Um, and Rabbi Yitzchak had no choice. You couldn't say no to the bishop. If you did, there was certain death for himself and for um, perhaps the entire Jewish community. He could not say no, but he really did not want to sell a diamond to be placed in a Christian cross. And so um, he therefore, Rashi, uh, and so therefore, Rab, the way the story goes, Rabbi Yitzchak said that he would sell it, but he does not want to come to the palace. He's afraid somebody would steal it from him. So therefore, he would meet him by the river, um, by the um, Cien River, which goes through Troyes. And over there, um, he would make the transaction. And so he meets him over there. He meets the bishop over there with the diamond. And as he is pulling out his diamond, he slips and he falls, and the diamond falls right into the river. 
and he, have, he had done so purposely in order to avoid selling the bishop the diamond. Doing so, he took a very, very large loss. But he did that in order not to, um, because he did not want to help, um, he did not want to sell the diamond to the bishop. He didn't want it to be used in idolatrous practice or in Christian practice. And so Jewish law generally forbids us um, from selling um, items to be used in um, Christian or other religions um, in their rights. So, um, so as a result, we are told Rabbi Yitzchak was blessed. He and his wife were blessed that they had this child because of this great sacrifice. Um, he was blessed to have this child, Rashi. Another story is told that Troy's, like many medieval um, towns, was built of stone, had stone buildings, and very, very narrow alleyways. And one time his mother was walking, while she was pregnant with Rashi's mother, while she was pregnant with him, was walking through an alleyway in Troy's. And as she was uh, walking through, a horse came through, a, a wagon driven by horses came through. It would have usually been a nobleman's wagon. Um, only noblemen were allowed to ride horse and wagon then. And, um, but the, because of the narrow alleyway, there was no way that she could allow for the um, horses to pass and she would get trampled by the horses, something that noblemen at the time did not pay much attention to um, because in the class society they had then, um, killing serfs or killing Jews was not a matter of great consequence. And so she pressed herself against the wall and we are told that miraculously she, um, the wall gave way and a crevice was made in the wall where she was able to move aside for the wagon to pass. And that crevice apparently stayed in the wall for many, many years later. People were able to point to the crevice and say, this is where Rashi's mother had been saved. And it is another story that is told about Rashi. Another, another fascinating story that has been told over the years about Rashi involves the first crusade that we mentioned earlier. It is told that the prince, Godfrey of Bullion, who led the first crusade, before heading out on the first crusade, heard that there was a great saint, Jewish saint, living in Troyes, and um, he decided to seek Rashi's advice um, about heading out on the crusade. So he came and he visited Rashi. Rashi was very old at the time, and he asked Rashi what his view was about heading out on a crusade to the Holy Land. So Rashi tells him, you will um, succeed in making it to the Holy Land, you will succeed in capturing Jerusalem and becoming king of Jerusalem, however you will later be driven from Jerusalem, and you will be forced to come back here back to France. Then you will lose your entire army on the way. You will come back here to Troyes with only three horsemen. And so um, God, um, this Prince Godfrey was very upset about hearing that, and he decided he was going to go anyway, but he warned Rashi that if it doesn't come as he, if he comes back and it is not true what Rashi said, he will have Rashi killed. And so indeed he, Godfrey, succeeded in making it to Jerusalem and capturing Jerusalem and becoming king of Jerusalem. However, he soon lost Jerusalem back to the Arabs and he was forced to return back to France. And he came back to Troyes 
um, some years later. And um, as he was returning, he was heading towards Troyes. He had lost most of his men. He had four horsemen. Having four horsemen, Rashi said he would come back with only three. And so he decided he was going to go back to Rashi, prove Rashi wrong, and he was going to have Rashi killed. And as he was entering the city of Troyes with four horsemen, a um, stone fell from the gate and fell onto one of the horsemen, and the horseman dropped dead. And indeed, he entered Troyes with only three horsemen, as Rashi had accurately predicted. He came straight to Rashi's home, only to find that Rashi had just died the day before, um, and he had missed Rashi and was not able to thank him for his advice. Um, this story may not be entirely accurate historically, um, because um, there's some debate as to whether Godfrey of Bullion ever made it back to France, but um, that's the story that's told about Rashi. Um, maybe some suggest maybe it was another prince, not Gottfried, but that's the way the um, story is told. Um, so anyway, these are stories that are told about Rashi, not historical records that were told in Rashi's day, but rather stories that were recorded hundreds of years later that presumably had been told throughout the Jewish community for a very long time. The exact source and the exact accuracy of these stories, we do not know. But as I mentioned earlier, most important, the most important details about Rashi are not his life story. There are dozens of biographies written about Rashi, and they give us very little information about his, about his story, his life story, because we know very little about his actual life story. What's most important about Rashi is Rashi's impact. Rashi's impact, as I said earlier, cannot be understated, the impact Rashi had on Jews and Judaism. The greatest impact of Rashi, while Rashi wrote a number of books, the greatest impact of Rashi comes from his two great commentaries. The first commentary that Rashi wrote was a commentary on the Talmud. He wrote a commentary on almost the entire Talmud, um, missing on just a handful of books, two books, as I mentioned earlier, Makos and Baba Basra. He stopped in the middle. Um, we only have part of it, um, and a handful of others, such as Nadarim, where we don't have any of Rashi's commentary. But he wrote commentary on more than 30 books of the Talmud. To give you a sense of the, just the size of the Talmud, in the system today that we have called Daf Yomi, where people study a daily page of the Talmud, it takes seven and a half years to complete. That's studying a page a day. Um, a page of the Talmud, is, they're large pages, very small typeset. Um, so studying a page of the Talmud is quite a job. So to give you a sense, it's um, 2,700 pages. To give you a sense of the immensity and the size of the Talmud, to write a commentary on the entire Talmud is a huge undertaking. To write such an extensive commentary, very few individuals have written a commentary on the entire Talmud. It's something that would take years and years of writing. And so you can imagine then how large Rashi's commentary would then be. Now, the Talmud itself is written in Aramaic, mostly in Aramaic. And it's written in shorthand. It's written in what we could call Talmudic shorthand, 
with a complex where, in other words, there's different phrases that have different distinct meanings that are only found in the Talmud. And it also um, is written, there's a lot of difficult Aramaic words in the Talmud. For people that don't speak a fluent Aramaic, it's hard for them to know what those words mean. Um, it also has a complex system of reasoning um, with many different types of questions. There are many different types of answers, many different types of arguments, um, a very complex but organized system of reasoning. And it also is explaining the complex laws of Judaism. We have 613 commandments, many of them that subdivide into very, very complex rules. So for hundreds of years after the Talmud had been compiled, the Talmud was written about the year 500. So for hundreds of years after the Talmud was written, to study the Talmud, you essentially needed a teacher to study the Talmud. A person could not study the Talmud, figure it out on their own. You needed a teacher to teach you the Talmud. They would be able to translate the difficult words. They would be able to explain the reasoning of the Talmud. They would be able to explain the shorthand in many places, um, exactly what the Talmud means. So the way they studied throughout what's called the Gaonic period for the 500 years after the Talmud was first put together, first compiled, the way people studied is they would have to go for 10 years or even more to a yeshiva, studying Talmud full-time, cover the entire Talmud or whatever books of the Talmud they covered, and those were the books that that scholar knew. You couldn't really study on your own without a teacher who had been taught by their teacher. And so you would study a great scholar, knew the, uh, knew the entire Talmud, would spend a decade, two decades or more studying the Talmud so that they were fluent in the entire massive work of the Talmud, knew what every word meant, knew what every argument, how every reasoning worked, knew the, um, every shorthand in the Talmud, and then they could in turn study it and teach it to their students. And that is the way the Talmud had been studied for hundreds of years. And while people, some wrote dictionaries to translate some difficult words of the Talmud, and people wrote a specific commentary on different parts, it was still something that you really could only be taught by a teacher. Rashi was the first one to write a comprehensive commentary explaining almost every page in the Talmud. Rashi's commentary explains things very, very clearly, translating difficult words, um, writing in clear, simple words, uh, Hebrew words, the, um, the short meaning of the shorthand in different parts of the Talmud, explaining the question, the answer, the reasoning, adding in complex laws um, where the Talmud doesn't bother to explain them. Um, Rashi gives us all of those details, but it is all very clear and very concise. Rashi, although a very extensive commentary that explains everything, uses a minimal amount of words. When we compare Rashi after Rashi, many, many others wrote commentaries on different parts of the Talmud, some even on the entire Talmud. When we compare Rashi to other commentaries, even of his own students and others, when we even compare Rashi to the, the we, as I mentioned, his um, son-in-law con concluded the commentary on one book, his grandson on another book, when we even compare it to the commentaries written by his son-in-law and his grandson, the quality of the commentary is not even close. 
Rashi's commentary is much shorter than the other commentaries. In other words, when you compare the size of the commentary per page, there is much less commentary on each page. It is much, much shorter and much, much clearer and easier to follow. The clarity that Rashi had, his perfection with words, being able to explain each and everything clearly, but with every word, uh, without wasting a single word, was very, very powerful. And Rashi's commentary was also able to be meaningful on multiple levels. It would be simple that would allow somebody to simply read it and understand the meaning of the Talmud. It would also offer, um, in his commentary, he would um, essentially in a, um, allude to issues that may arise or questions that may arise and resolve questions just through the flow of his commentary. And so for someone studying in great depth, Rashi's commentary offered great depth as well, answering many questions, resolving a lot of issues um, of the Talmud. But Rashi's commentary opened up the Talmud, where anybody who has basic training in Talmudic study, in other words, anybody who's been trained by a teacher to study a few books of the Talmud, um, which maybe takes a couple years, but if you've been trained to study a few books of the Talmud, using Rashi's commentary, you can effectively open any book of the Talmud and study it. So while the Talmud before Rashi was a closed book where nobody was able to study it on their own, you needed a teacher to teach it to you, otherwise you couldn't figure out what it was saying. Once, <coughs> excuse me, once Rashi wrote his commentary, anybody was able to open, and anyone who had basic training in understanding the basic reasoning and basic wording and structure of the Talmud was able to open any, is able to open any book of the Talmud and can do so today and read the Talmud with Rashi's commentary and you can understand everything. You can understand any part of the Talmud. It is that clear and that easy to follow. And so as a result, Jews have learned Talmud with Rashi's commentary for the past close to a thousand years since it was written. It has been the standard commentary on the Talmud. Every Talmud that has been printed ever was always printed with Rashi's commentary. Even great scholars have used Rashi's commentary <laughs> as a basis for further analysis on the Talmud, for further commentary, and other commentaries always build on Rashi. Rashi has always been the basic commentary on the Talmud. Um, when studying the Talmud today in school, um, when one goes to a yeshiva, to a, a school that teaches Talmud, students are usually taught in high school over the four years of high school to be able to study Talmud on their own, to get all Talmudic skills, to be able to learn Talmud themselves. And any student who has gone to a yeshiva high school that has, um, with a serious Talmud program, would be able to open any book of the Talmud using Rashi's commentary, be able to read it and study it. So Rashi has made open the Talmud for all of us and served as the basis of all commentaries of the Talmud. The other major work of Rashi was his commentary on the Torah, and not just the Torah. Rashi wrote his commentary on all of Scripture, on all of Tanakh. 
Um, but most notable was his commentary on the Torah. Rashi on the Torah did the same thing. Though we had Midrash before Rashi, we had Midrashim, which were commentaries that came beforehand. Those Midrashim were often unclear, many of them written in difficult Aramaic, but often unclear. Um, often they will offer many, many commentaries on a, specific, on a particular verse, um, and they didn't serve as an easy-to-read, flowing commentary on the Torah. When Rashi wrote his commentary, he collected from Midrash and from other commentaries that had predated him. Most of Rashi, probably 80-90% of Rashi's commentary on the Torah is not original in any sense, um, is rather collecting, collected from earlier commentaries. But Rashi edits those earlier commentaries, making them very clear, very concise, very easy to read, and very easy to understand. And what same what Rashi did for the Talmud, he did the same for the Torah. He made it very easy to understand exactly what the Torah is saying. And while the Torah itself is very cryptic in many parts and hard to read, hard to understand, especially in the laws, when explaining the laws, it's often hard to understand exactly what it's saying. Rashi's commentary always makes it clear, makes it clear, easy to follow easy to understand exactly what is going on. And so Rashi essentially opened the Torah, making it easy for any person to open the Torah, read it with Rashi's commentary, and understand exactly what the Torah is saying. Rashi essentially, as he did with the Talmud, made the Torah accessible to everyone. And so therefore, it's become, since Rashi's days, it has, although there are um, hundreds if not thousands of other commentaries written on the Torah, Rashi's commentary has become the standard commentary on the Torah. It is the standard tool to use. Children begin learning Torah already in the early grades of grade school, and they, as soon as they start studying Torah, they start studying it with Rashi's commentary. Almost every Chumash, Chumash is a book of Torah, um, printed in book form as opposed to in a scroll, in a Torah scroll. Almost every Chumash that has been printed since the first printings were print, was printed with Rashi's commentary alongside. You'd be hard-pressed to find a Chumash that does not have Rashi's commentary printed in it, and that's because Rashi's commentary is the standard for understanding the Torah. In fact, the very first Hebrew book to be printed in 1475, and one of the first books ever printed was Rashi's commentary on the Torah. Now, when Rashi's commentary on the Torah was printed, it was printed in an interesting script, um, Hebrew script, um, that became known with time as Rashi's script. And so Torah with Rashi, usually the Torah would be in the traditional biblical script that we write the Torah scrolls in, and or a traditional square Hebrew script. And Rashi's commentary was written in a script, in a roundish script, um, or in a, uh, in a rounded script, and um, became known as Rashi writing or Rashi script. It was a script that was more commonly used in printing in general in the early years of printing, because when printing was done by hand, it was much easier to work with round letters than square letters. Ashuris, or the script used in Torah scrolls, um, is square letters, 
Um, so as a result, because it's easier to use roundish letters, they used the Rashi script in early printings. It became known as Rashi script since the first book that was printed was Chumash Torah with Rashi printed, with Rashi printed in that script. And so therefore it became known as Rashi script, although Rashi himself probably never used that script and lived long before printing was invented in the 1400s. So Rashi's impact, as I've mentioned, cannot be understated. Rashi opened up the two most important works of Judaism, the Torah, or Tanakh, the Holy Scriptures, um, which is our written Torah, and the most important, the, the written Torah itself, made it easy, accessible for everybody to follow. And Rashi also opened up the Talmud, which until Rashi was a difficult book to read, one could not study without a teacher, Rashi opened it up, made it easily accessible thanks to his commentary, where everybody is able to follow it. The Talmud is the most essential work of our oral tradition. It's the most comprehensive work of the entire oral tradition. When we did a class some time ago, we explained in great, about the oral tradition, about the Talmud, we explained why. Um, the Talmud is the um, most comprehensive work that includes all of our laws and traditions um, in the most comprehensive way, and its rulings have been accepted by consensus by all Jewish communities universally, and so therefore the Talmud is the most important work of our Jewish tradition. Rashi opened up the Talmud and the Torah for all of us to be able to relate to it, and his commentaries are without a doubt the most important commentaries in Judaism. And so therefore Rashi's impact remains today. We are all Rashi's students. Anyone studying Torah or anyone studying Talmud today would effectively be studying it with Rashi's commentary. And even if you are not reading it, Rashi's commentary at the time, but perhaps you are have someone else explaining it to you, or you are using a, a different commentary, every other commentary or any other teacher will be teaching based on Rashi's original commentary. So Rashi can be considered the one who opened up Torah and Talmud for all of us. Since Rashi's days, Rashi's two major works, the Torah, the commentary on the Torah and the commentary on the Talmud, have become the most used commentaries and the, have opened up the Torah and the Talmud for all Jews. And so Rashi is essentially, we can call him the teacher of Israel, the teacher, the scholar who has made the greatest impact on Jewish scholarship in the last thousand years, and perhaps the most important scholar in Israel of all times. And so it's important to recognize Rashi's greatness. And of course, to study Rashi, many commentaries have been written, both on Rashi's commentary on the Talmud and on Rashi's commentary on the Torah. Dozens, if not hundreds of commentaries have been written, all explaining Rashi's wording um, and explaining the great meaning. Every word of Rashi is very precise. And really, um, we all today can be considered Rashi's students. So I 